0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbas of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review.
1: Three Martini's coming up.
0: It is Monday. Glad you're with us for a start of a brand new week here on the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is waiting. Go ahead and grab it. We actually have a good martini today. Didn't have a lot of those last week, but good, bad, and crazy today. We're brought to you today by ExpressVPN, and you can visit our special link at expressvpn.com slash martini. And you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package, expressvpn.com slash martini. Much more on that in just a moment. Jim, let's start with our good martini. And we kind of talked about this uh, a couple of weeks back with Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz, and we kind of even threw Dr. Drew in there. Got a bit of feedback and a decent amount of pushback, actually, from some listeners who, first of all, pointed out that Dr. Drew actually is an MD. And then uh, uh, also, to some extent, defended the the comments that uh, we were not exactly fans of. Well, uh, Howard Kurtz is now uh, essentially sided with you on this, Jim. And uh, here is what uh, he had to say in part about uh, these TV doctors weighing in on the coronavirus crisis on yesterday's edition of Media Buzz on the Fox News channel. Dr. Oz said on Fox that we should reopen the schools. Schools are a very appetizing opportunity. Uh, I just saw a nice piece in The Lancet arguing that the opening of schools may only cost us 2 to 3 percent in terms of total mortality. Only 2 to 3 percent more people would die? Dr. Mehmet Oz soon apologized. I've realized my comments on risks around opening schools have confused and upset people, which was never my intention. I misspoke. Dr. Phil, in a separate Fox appearance, minimized the impact of the virus. The fact of the matter is we have people dying. 45,000 people a year die from automobile accidents, 480,000 from cigarettes, 360,000 a year from swimming pools, but we don't shut the country down for that. But Dr. Phil McGraw later said he used the wrong statistics for swimming pool fatalities and recognizes the other risks are not contagious. They're probably not good examples. Uh, I probably could have used better examples about that. Oh, and by the way, I misspoke about drowning deaths. If you didn't like my choice of words, I apologize for that. Personally, I'd rather hear from medical doctors who actually know something about infectious diseases. So, Jimmy's basically saying that the TV doctors who should be on TV during a time like this are the ones who actually know about infectious diseases. I don't know if this will be another controversial take or not, but I think he's probably right.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm really hoping that this, you know, terrible crisis we're going through, I'm hoping we get something better out of it. And maybe one of the things that could be better out of it, I know some people might be jumping at the gun here and say, is that no one will listen to Oprah anymore. Well, that's probably not <laughs> going to happen. But, but something where we get a clearer sense of, the, the, one, the divide between news and entertainment and trustworthy information and entertainment. Um, Look, I think it's safe to say that, you know, there, there's a spectrum of daytime talk, talk shows. Uh, you weren't tuning in to Jerry Springer for health advice. At least I hope you weren't. Although well, he was the mayor of Cincinnati at one point. <laughs> Cincinnati, what were you thinking? Um, but, but the idea that, that these folks have turned into... Um, because Oprah was kind of the universal best friend of so many viewers for all those years that people began to believe that the people she had as a regular guest were people who they could trust, uh, Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and all that sort of stuff. And I think the traits that make someone good on television, that make them entertaining, that make them a lot of fun to watch, uh, probably do not necessarily translate to emergency management probably do not translate to uh, having a cool head in a crisis. And I think the other thing is that a person with real responsibility who doesn't know the answer, you know, the responsible thing to do is to say, I don't know the answer. On television, in fact, I've heard other pundits say this specifically, you're never supposed to say that you don't know the answer. Uh, someone once said that they were on one of the uh, big cable network shows, and they were asked a question, and they said, I don't know. And the host turned to them during commercial break and said, never say that again on my program. <laughs> I'll let you guess who. Not, don't know if that story I was heard was supposed to be repeated. But, I say, so, but as I'm going through all this stuff, when Dr. Oz says, you know, if you're really concerned about getting throat, throat cancer, you should eat more rutabagas. The worst case scenario is that you eat a lot of rutabagas and it doesn't really do anything for you. Um, and you're, you know your you're, you're dietary you might be a little thrown out, but it's probably not going to kill you or anything like that. As this health thing came along, health problem came along, we got these reports out of, of out of China, and if people started being afraid of this coming here, the right thing to do would be for Dr. Phil to say, I'm a psychiatrist. I don't know the first thing about virology. You listen to me, how's that working out for you? Um, and you know, to, to acknowledge that. Uh, I believe Oz is a gastroenterologist, or, or he's a in internal medicine, uh, and uh, uh, Doctor uh, Drew, who I generally like, but who's a therapist. He's a, he's you know specializes in addictions and, and things like that. These are not people who know the first thing about virology, and that they, they went out in front of the cameras and made these utterly confident statements about how the media was overhyping it, or, or this and the other thing. Um, It really, I I, again, I don't think that these guys need to be locked up in stocks and for us to hurl rotten fruit at them. I just think that we need to make it okay for people to say, I don't know the answer to that question. You really should ask someone who knows better than I do. And I don't know whether it's ego. I don't know whether it's narcissism. I don't know whether it's a a fear that they'll lose their spot on Oprah's couch and that they won't be as famous and they won't be as big a deal. Look, when you don't when you don't acknowledge what you don't know, you end up with terrible, terrible consequences. So I, I say kudos to uh, Howard Kurtz for calling this out, um, and I th- hope that this is a kind of a lasting change in our media environment, where we stop listening to people because they're entertaining, and we start. Li- you know, look, if you can have entertaining pundits, you know, yelling on all kinds of topics. That's not that's fine. I'm not saying you know every last bit of, uh, uh, you know, of of daytime television and every every person on the you know the the couch of ellen has to you know be fact-checked like uh you know like a politician speech but just kind of recognize what you're getting here there, there needs to be a little more scrutiny in the viewership of the of the world and uh hopefully experiences like this will, will get there and hopefully you know criticisms like that from howard will you know uh generate a little uh a little more accountability in our media culture
0: Yeah, one would hope so. Uh, My favorite thing in punditry, Jim, is when someone starts by saying they don't really know or we're not sure, but they still give a two-minute answer full of very opinionated statements uh, because, like you said, you can't (laughs) stop with, well, we don't know. So a lot of times it'll be, I don't know, but I wish you had asked me about this, and so I'll just talk about this instead. And so that's kind of how they spin it. You also mentioned Jerry Springer, who, of course, uh, before he was a, a daytime talk show host was mayor of Cincinnati. Uh, he had a slightly different definition of sheltering in place. It involved a uh, city check, which uh, led to his uh, ouster as mayor of Cincinnati. <laughs> so I will let folks Google that because, uh, A, we don't have time, and B, it's a family podcast. So, hey, the good
1: news is he wasn't the father.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about ExpressVPN. Uh, you want to obviously hear from experts who will help you uh, understand things well and to stay safe. You also want to stay safe online. And being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network. Fire up incognito mode on your browser, right? And no one can see what you're doing? Wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when you're at home, you never want to go online without using
1: ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure that your internet service provider cannot see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that is shared amongst thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and cannot be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. You can use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. Express VPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you are protected. Express VPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It is rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless more. And you know how weird it gets, Jim, when you're uh, you
0: looking for a plumber or you're looking for a gift for your wife or your kids or something, and the next thing you know, you're on your email and all of a sudden all the banner ads are something related to what you just searched for. It's very creepy. I hate that. And so uh, there are ways to, to avoid that. ExpressVPN is the way to go. Protect your online activity today with the VPN that you can trust to secure your privacy. Visit our special link at expressvpn.com martini, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash martini. Expressvpn.com martini to learn more. All right, Jim. Speaking of being online, one of the nice things we uh, can do when we're online, whether it's social media or, or other places, is to speak our mind freely. That's one of the nice things about being an American. In fact, we've kind of put it in the First Amendment to the Constitution for a reason. But some folks think that's not necessarily a good thing, at least not all the time, at least not on the internet. So The Atlantic has a piece that uh, ran over the weekend entitled, Internet Speech Will Never Go Back to Normal, Subhead. In the debate over freedom versus control of the global network, China was largely correct and the US was wrong. Further down, and this is by Jack Goldsmith, a Harvard Law School professor, and Andrew Keen Woods, law professor at the University of Arizona College of Law. They write this. As surprising as it may sound, digital surveillance and speech control in the United States already show many similarities to what one finds in authoritarian states such as China. Constitutional and cultural differences mean that the private sector rather than the federal and state governments, currently takes the lead in these practices, which further values and address threats different from those in China. But the trend toward greater surveillance and speech control here and toward the growing involvement of government is undeniable and likely inexorable. Here we go. In the great debate of the past two decades about freedom versus control of the network, China was largely right and the United States was largely wrong. Significant monitoring and speech control are inevitable components of a mature and flourishing internet and governments must play a large role in these practices to ensure that the internet is compatible with a society's norms and values. And so Jim, we've just been having this huge debate about some governor's restrictions, Michigan in particular, but other places as well. Uh, You know, does the Bill of Rights take a holiday when we have an emergency? And when it comes to internet speech, these law school professors, who you would assume study the constitution, say, you know what, this is a good time to point out that we shouldn't have as much free speech.
1: Yeah, uh, when I first saw this, and particularly that headline, in the debate over freedom versus control over the global network, China was largely correct, and the U.S. was wrong. My first thought was, "Oh, this is one of those advertising supplements that the Chinese uh, state-run media chooses to buy." They used to do this in the uh, in the Washington Post, in I think the Washington Times periodically. Although they were much more aligned aligned with uh, Taiwan. Um, and it would be, you know, basically Chinese propaganda, but the check cleared and, you know, it was a separate section. It was a special advertising section. It may have looked like a news report. And after a while, the pressure on these newspapers, they stopped doing it. They realized, okay, this is making us look ridiculous. Um, but no, and this is Jack Goldsmith, Harvard Law School professor. You know, these are folks who are not necessarily seen as Chinese mouthpieces, at least until a day or two ago. Um, And who are are kind of respected and, you know, folks in the conservative circles were were buzzing about this, this weekend, basically all comments in the vein of like, I thought this guy was sane. Um, And now (laughs) he's not. And and I I think there's a couple interesting things that jump out about this. The first is, even if you believe this is this the right moment to make this argument (laughs) when we know that China has effectively lied about this outbreak, hid the evidence from the world, lied to the World Health Organization, either, you know, the World Health Organization in your minds either went along with it completely willingly or utterly obliviously with their lies. Um, The World Health Organization refused to recognize Taiwan directly because of of pressure from China. Um, And as I wrote at great length in today's Morning Jolt, China has been shipping faulty uh, medical equipment, faulty tests, the tests that can't detect, you know, tell the difference between positive and negative, uh, masks, and all kinds of personal protective equipment that have just been garbage. I added up all the reports. I got more than 10 million pieces of equipment that did not work as ad, they were supposed to, um, sent all around the world from China. This is really a bad time to come out and say, "Hey, China was right and the U.S. was wrong." Um, the second thing that kind of jumps out about this is that, as you said, this is these are law professors who who Basically, like it's not they don't know about the First Amendment. Obviously, they do. They've concluded we don't need it anymore. They have concluded that the fear of misinformation on the internet is so damaging uh, that it's time for us to start adopting these sorts of restrictions and times where the government can come in and say, no, you can't write that on the internet. And a widely cited example, it's not quite the government, but uh, YouTube has said that they're not going to take out, they're not going to allow anything that disagrees with the recommendations from the World Health Organization on its website. I find this a really unwise course of action when the world health organization spent a couple of weeks echoing the Chinese line that this was not, could not be done from person to person. Greg, didn't we spend a few weeks of this crisis? People insisting that masks didn't do any good. Sure. And I started thinking, are doctors wearing them for decoration? Why do you think people wear them if they don't? Now maybe they don't wear. Maybe they don't give perfect protection, right? You know, you there's always that possibility. You know, the average public person in the public is probably going to wear them imperfectly. It's not going to be completely sealed around the chin or the the sides of the face, you know. But the 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 message of most people who study these sorts of things, say, look. When you're, you know, when you're wearing a mask, everything you're exhaling sticks near you, particularly the, the you know, mo- little droplets of moisture that could be carrying the virus. And if you're wearing it, you're much less likely to inhale it from somebody else. Maybe not 100%, but it's going to greatly reduce it. But for a couple of weeks, the experts are like, oh, you silly peons, of course you don't need masks, right? We have a lot of poser, you know, uh, even Anthony Fauci uh, came out and said he didn't think that this was going to be coming to the United States in the first couple of weeks of this crisis based on the reports in China. Right. Experts can be wrong. But we talked about in that last part, Martini, the idea of, well, based on what I know, this is what I, you know, this is what I think. However, I could, you know, we could learn more and this would alter the way I see this. This is one of the reasons why, you know, the idea of, you know, we're not going to allow you to disagree with this particular authority is a dangerous rule to put down. Uh, and then this, this, is, this is the Atlantic is owned by the widow of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs made all of his money through Apple. Apple is obviously heavily dependent on China. This is not the first article in the Atlantic that has really done kid gloves treatment on the Chinese government. A lot of people think that this is, you know, wonder how much the mentality of what is good for the bottom line of the owners of the Atlantic how much that influences the editorial decisions and what, what appears in its pages. Uh, I'd like to talk to another expert about this, Greg, but Kevin Williamson was not available for comment. <laughs> so this is probably a factor of both here, but we've seen so much
0: mainstream media defense of China here. Is it because, as we've just described with The Atlantic, and I think we talked at one point about Comcast and NBC heavily invested in China, Or is it just the fact that, well, Trump is blaming the virus on China, and if we defend China, we're somehow de facto going after Trump?
1: Yeah, okay, I think that latter factor is definitely a factor in this in some way. This idea of, look, even if China's guilty, we can't do anything that could, you know, sound like we're agreeing with Trump. Because as we all know, Trump is always wrong about everything, and we cannot possibly ever acknowledge that he's got a point here at all. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Larry O'Connor, who's on WMAL in one of the stations out in Los Angeles, uh, was kind enough, had me on, did an interview to talk about, you know, said how much he enjoyed my local reporting. And he, he asked a very fair question, which is like, Jim, why are you the one doing this? And Greg, i got to tell you, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just some guy who can't even leave his house these days, right? I'm, I'm not an expert foreign correspondent. I don't have any great connections in the Chinese. Everything I'm doing is going from the internet looking at international reporting, looking at documents. And, you know, if they're in Chinese, I got to run them through Google Translate. I don't speak – all the Chinese I know I learned from Firefly, okay? (laughs) Um, But from that, I've learned a heck of a lot of information about how things work in China and all the information that, you know, suggests the possibility of a lab accident and all the different ways in which they were uh, insisting it was not contagious uh, when when, when doctors on the ground in Wuhan knew that it was. Everything I'm doing could be done by the Associated Press or the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or any of these big institutions. And by the way, some of them have done some good reporting. Greg, I periodically wonder, because I'm not in China, I have no particular interest in staying on the good side of the Chinese government. They can't revoke my visa. Uh, they can't expel me from the country. As far as I know, they can't threaten any of my you know, loved ones. Uh, I mean, they could always try to Jack Bauer me. And then when you you log in one day to do this podcast, I'm not there and I don't come back until next season. But by and large, I think the single clearest reason is that National Review is not owned by anybody else. We are National Review Incorporated. We are now an intentional nonprofit after being an unintentional nonprofit for much of our history. (laughs) And there is no, you know, oh, this this is going to hurt our sales in the Chinese market. I'm surprised National Review isn't banned in China. You probably have to smuggle it in if it's there. So suspect we have subscribers in Taiwan, though. But the thing is that there's nobody above me saying, "Jim, you can't write that. It's gonna, it's gonna ruin the sales of Rich Lowry bobbleheads in the <laughs> uh, in in the Beijing stores." So, you know, as we saw with the NBA. You know, guys who will be extremely outspoken about everything under the sun will suddenly say, oh, it's so complicated. I I can't tell whether the the cops in Hong Kong who are beating people are right." Or whether the people who are being beaten are right. It's so complicated and exotic. Almost an inscrutable Asian culture, Greg. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the kind of tone you get from this. So I, I don't know. I, I do have a sneaking suspicion that when you don't see this from anything that is owned by Comcast or owned by Disney or owned by uh, Viacom or any of these other big companies that have large investments in China, the odds of that having no factor in it seem very unlikely to me.
0: No, that's exactly right. And as a closing thought here, of course, these people, the whole point of the thing is that they think the U.S. should be more like China when it comes to Internet speech. And Jim, National Review's got a proud history of standing athwart history and yelling stop. And uh, it's probably more intense when the Democrats are in charge. But I- I've heard rumors that uh, not everyone at National Review is in love with this administration. And so uh, if you have the same policy... <laughs> I fear you might be disappeared at some point, and I don't want that to happen virtually or literally. So uh, we can't go down this road.
1: No, no. It's, you know, I, I wonder at what point do the readers of The Atlantic feel like what they're reading doesn't match what they see outside their window. Maybe, maybe we're far off from that. I don't know. But uh, I, I, you're seeing a decent amount of pushback against this piece, and I'm glad to see it. I do wonder about the editorial process that felt like running that piece with that headline the U S was wrong and China was right about freedom on the internet right now. And how does that, you know, how do like, how do protesters in Hong Kong feel? How do the Tibetans feel? How do, how does every oppressed organization, you know, how do the, you know, not this will be read by the, those in the camps, the, the Wiggers and the concentration camps, but like, again, as somebody else said, censorship is a moral duty is going to be a big rallying cry from now until the end of the year.
0: That's disgusting. Free people don't act like this and they don't embrace this. So uh, like you said, the pushback is a good thing here. All right. As long as we're talking about China, let's finish there on the crazy martini. Let's talk about Nancy Pelosi because, of course, uh, she and Joe Biden were not big fans of the travel ban on China that Trump uh, instituted in late January. But since then, uh, their attitudes have greatly changed. Uh, Biden now says he uh, supported it and uh, and I believe some more said it would have been tougher. And now Nancy Pelosi is taking that tack as well. She was on State of the Union with Jake Tapper. He asked her specifically about that. And you're going to love this revisionist history answer. Well, there's one thing, one point of clarif- uh, clarification I was, I was wondering. <clears throat> Vice President Joe Biden's campaign told me earlier this month uh, that he supported President Trump's partial travel restrictions uh, on January 31st, blocking foreign nationals from China from coming to the United States. D- do you agree that it was the right move by President Trump at the time? Well, let, let's go into the future, OK? Uh, the, actually, tens of thousands of people were still allowed in from China. So it wasn't as it is described as this great moment. There were Americans coming back or green card holders coming back, but there were tens of thousands. So if you're going to shut the door because you have a, an evaluation of, of an epidemic, then shut the door. So there you go, Jim. She hated it. I believe she was planning to file legislation to try and reverse it at one point. Jake Tapper just sat there, like my mom would say, with his teeth in his mouth and said nothing to uh, dispute her or correct her. But nonetheless, there she is trying to make it sound like uh, the thing that she hated that Trump did wasn't nearly strong enough. Amazing.
1: Yeah. Now, I'll observe that the travel restriction on China it wasn't, you know, it, it's not quite shutting the barn door after the horses have left the barn, so to speak. It was a step. It was not. A, it was not sufficient. Um, we've seen apparently the. But there's an argument. that Some studies are indicating there are two strains of the coronavirus that are in the United States right now. Most of the West Coast cases are from China. Most of the East Coast cases, including the ones that are ravaging New York City and northern New Jersey right now, are from the uh, the East Coast came from Italy, came from Europe. So if you want to argue that the Restrictions on China were insufficient. Okay, fine. You can make that argument. It's a legitimate argument. The argument that, uh, that she went with is not bad. The argument, tens of thousands of people were still allowed in from China. It wasn't as it was described, this great moment. There were Americans coming back or green card holders coming back. Madam Speaker, are you complaining about that? <laughs> was, it, was the argument, no, Americans who were stuck in China during the outbreak should be locked out and left to die. <laughs> Nobody was going to make that argument. I'm not, I'm not even sure that's constitutional. I don't think you can bar people from returning to their home country. Uh, maybe we're in uncharted territories here. Uh, You can quarantine them. You can keep them in certain locations to ensure that they don't spread disease. And in fact, that's what we did. Um, But the idea that Nancy, the vast majority of her coverage is that she's some sort of this three-level chess strategic genius who's always uh, one step ahead of the competition, et cetera. And my my sense is the coverage of her is this because the media wants to see her as this. This is, you know, this is wish casting, right? Nancy Pelosi is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and she very often will grab whatever argument is handy, even if it strongly contradicts what she was saying two months ago. And again, if you're gonna shut the door because you have an evaluation of an epidemic, then shut the door. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I, I don't believe that she would go. You know, one, she would never support this. Two, I don't really believe she even believes what she's saying. What does she want? Well, one, she wants to, you know, dodge the question. And then she wants to, to basically, she, she, at some point she wants to argue Trump didn't do enough and that he's a xenophobe. And we're probably going to get some version of this argument in, you know, in the same sentence at some point. Um, she makes it up as she goes along. She's improv And I'll make an observation since I know there are some folks out there who, uh, who listen to this podcast on a regular basis who think I'm too tough on the president or too, too critical of the president. By the way, there's a guy out there on Ricochet named Terrace who writes that Jim Garrity is wrong about everything. And I was about to be irritated by that, Greg, and then it dawned on me. He listens every day. Can I ask for more? Not really, right? So, so good for you, Terrace. Thanks for listening. Um, but the observation here, look, Trump got a ton of grief about his uh, injecting disinfectant and, you know, shining light in the against it, a bright light, bright heat, you know. The president deserved that. There is room in this world for spitballing. You don't do it when the TV cameras are rolling in front of the White House press corps. But that having been said, like, the argument that the U.S. should have left its, its citizens in China during the outbreak is every bit as crazy as injecting Clorox into your veins, right? I mean, like, there, there's really not a huge difference between those two. We spent 72 hours of just whacking Trump around like a pinata for this. The only people who are noticing this, even though it occurred on CNN, are conservative media right now. So it's one of those things where this is happening on CNN. CNN very easily could have spent 72 hours saying, "Can you believe the Speaker of the House is actually contending Americans should have left their own citizens stuck in China during the coronavirus outbreak?" That would be perfectly legitimate coverage. That that's flood the zone. You know, is the Speaker of the House cruel or insane? Is a perfectly legitimate you know uh, tone of coverage to have right now? The moment people this, she said this. This is. Whoosh, it disappeared from the news environment because it reveals the fact that Nancy Pelosi is either cruel or insane, or in my suspicion in my you know strong suspicion, she just says whatever sounds good at any particular moment and doesn't really think through the ramifications. And Jake Tapper did nothing. I mean, yeah, uh, that, you know, just no correction whatsoever. Yeah, heck of a job, Jake. Yeah. HBO is making a movie out of his novel. So he's, he's probably thinking he's probably casting in his head during that. Maybe sl- he was actually trying to cast it on Twitter last
0: week. So you might be right. He might be distracted about that. But, you know, I'm sure it's a one-off. Uh, c- 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 CNN. He'll get her next time. <laughs> CNN, <laughs> CNN ignoring news that came from CNN. is uh, That never happens. Oh, wait. It's happened a lot in the last few days. But anyway, Jim, we'll call it there. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And don't forget to visit our friends over at ExpressVPN, expressvpn.com slash martini and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review. Find us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please be here on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.